I'm Brett. And I'm Alice. And we are the prosecutors. Today on The Prosecutors, we conclude our investigation into the murders of Mary Morris. everybody and welcome to this episode of the prosecutors i'm brett and i'm joined as always with my trophist co-host alice i don't even know what that means (laughs) okay so i have to explain that as you may recall in an earlier episode you suggested that people who do not live in the united states should start giving descriptors Ah. for you so that is norwegian Oh, thank goodness. I thought I just didn't understand the English language. (laughs) I'm glad I didn't pretend. I'm glad I didn't pretend to know it. (laughs) That's my best attempt to pronounce that, trophist. Um, It means, or the word that I'm trying to say, means faithful. So I think that's really nice, right? Thank you, whoever. Yes, shout out to Karen, Karen. Um, on Instagram, who who is from Oslo and listens to our show, who sent in that suggestion. Thank you, Karen. How so nice. Oslo is absolutely gorgeous. And she'll have to let me know if I actually pronounce that correctly or not. Maybe sure she I could make not. a rap song clip for it. <laughs> mm. That's a mm. that's a shout out to friend of the show Blair for making me laugh and Brett's wife laugh for uh approximately. 45 minutes straight with the rap video clip. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to our Twitter feed because it is well worth the five seconds it takes to listen to it. <laughs> it's really not that funny. I, I think it's great. You all can listen to it if you if you want to. I feel like I have a lot of random things to talk about. So if you don't like random things, like hit the 30 second button like four <laughs> times and then we'll probably be talking about the case. But we had... We had another friend who sent us a story today about a stabbing at Alice's favorite <laughs> donut chain. And this is true crime, true crime at the Dunkin' Donuts. And, you know, I guess somebody went to the Dunkin' Donuts and they had the donut and they were like, this is crap. And they asked for their money back and they wouldn't give them their money back. And okay, so they so stabbed the person. I have, essentially I what am happened. pretty sure I've solved this case already. Uh, we've talked a lot about hitmen on this show and how difficult it is to do because of the tracing of money. Um, and so I am pretty sure that Brett hired a hitman and to make a point and paid this hitman not in money because that's traceable, but in Krispy Kreme donuts because who would possibly think to track Krispy Kreme donuts? Case solved. You're welcome, America. And Oslo. <laughs> <laughs> And since and since Krispy Kreme donuts are free, as we all know, that's a really cheap way to get a hitman. You don't even have to pay for it. To be honest, Brett, can I can I can I be honest for a moment? 
this feud has uh, gone absolutely. on so long, I kind of forget which side I'm fighting for. <laughs> <laughs> Do we even have we a Krispy Kreme here? Do we have one? We don't have. Uh, we don't have a Krispy Kreme. I mean, I don't care. <laughs> we, we we definitely have a Krispy Kreme. Do we? we definitely have a Krispy Kreme. No, we, we definitely we have, have a Dunkin'. Dunkin'. I, oh, we do Dunkin have a Dunkin'. House. Oh, well, there oh, is okay. a Krispy Kreme. I can show you where it is <laughs> if you ever want to get uh, good donuts. And the last thing I want to talk about, which is completely unrelated to the case we're going to talk about. So once again, apologies to everybody who hates this. It's just an update. You know, Lake Stevens, you guys are awesome and you've done a lot, but you have been overtaken in the last couple episodes by Centennial Colorado. Centennial Colorado is currently our top city. Now, Centennial sounds nice and quaint and maybe in the mountains, you know, snow resort or something. It's actually a suburb of Denver, so I think it's kind of <laughs> cheating. But just if you're in Lake Stevens and you want to stay number one, you got to you gotta get out there and campaign for the show. All right. I think that's enough random conversation at the beginning because we got a crazy show for you guys today or i think it's crazy i don't know you'll probably think it's boring but we talked to you last week about mary morris the two mary morrises mary mora i don't know who were killed in houston back in 2000 within days of each other and we sort of told you the story that you've probably heard a thousand times if you've listened to this story on various podcasts, but we found we felt like that was lacking. And so whereas normally we really just sort of take public sources and we apply our expertise and our experience to that and kind of give you our spin on it. And this one we decided to dig into a little bit. We've probably been looking into this case for six months. Don't you think, Alice? All told. I can't remember if I said this on on last time's podcast, but this was one of the first cases we actually worked up and we just haven't gotten around to it because like you said, Brett, nothing about what was out there was satisfying. And, you know, we have limited time and resources because we have full-time jobs and, you know, children who depend on us for everything. But this was one of those cases that we've talked a lot to each other and we're like, you know what? Let's just try and see if people will talk to us. And I think because this story has never really had a deep dive, or I don't think it's ever really had a deep dive, it's not as popular as it should be. It's on every true crime podcast does this story at some point, but they do it because of the cool, sexy, hitman gone wrong hook. They don't really do the case. And I think because it's sort of a one-dimensional case, it doesn't have the following it has, and it doesn't have the people who are obsessed with it the way they should be. And I am convinced that if people poured the same amount of resources and energy into this case as they do some other cases, that this case could actually be solved. Even though it's 20 years old, there are good suspects in this case. There's evidence in these cases. And there are things that can either be verified or disproved that people have said publicly about this case. And I really think it needs to be reapproached. Both murders need to be reapproached with new fresh eyes, with new resources really tackle it. So we're going to talk to you guys today about the stuff we found out. And this is going to be a little bit different than some of the cases we've done before. We're just going to give you the information we found, and we're going to leave it to you to try and reach any conclusions you want to reach. I don't know how active these investigations are, but the people we're going to talk about are real people living their lives who... Some people may or may not believe are involved in these in these crimes, and they may or may not be. So we're not going to accuse anybody or do anything like that. 
we're just going to tell you the information we found out and hope that the police in Houston take a second look at this case. And so the way we're going to do this is we're going to talk about these as separate crimes. We're not going to do what everybody always does and just tie them together and talk about hitmen. We'll come back to that at the end. But for now, let's look at these cases as separate crimes and let's talk. Let's start with the first Mary Morris. Now, Alice and I had the pleasure to speak to Marilyn Blaylock, who is the first Mary Morris's daughter. So we're just going to call her Mary for now. We're not going to call her the first Mary Morris over and over again. But she was Mary's daughter, and she talked to us. And the thing about Mary's case is it's always just used as a jumping off point to talk about this as the Terminator theory or the hitman going wrong. You need the first murder for the second murder to be sexy. And so people ignore the first murder. And they say things like, Mary had a perfect life, and she had a perfect marriage, and she had a perfect job, and everyone loved her, and nobody had any problems with her. And so if she was murdered, it must have been some sort of hitman theory gone wrong. And Alice, I thought it was interesting when we talked when we talked to Marilyn that she said that in 20 years, in 20 years, the only people who had ever reached out to her were the folks at Murder in My Family, which is a good podcast that she appeared on, and you should listen to it, and us. In 20 years, nobody had ever reached out to her to talk to her about this case before. But that's shocking because, like you said, just about every true crime podcast has done an episode on the Mary Morris murders. And I will say, you know, we're about to delve into it, but speaking with Marilyn, she had a wealth of knowledge about the case, facts that I, I don't think the police mean to hold back, but is just not out there because no one's asked the questions. She was able to give color to who um, her mom was. I think it really uh, is enlightening for what may have happened. And she was just able to tell a fulsome story that if anyone even just took the time to ask her about, I think there would be a lot less mystery and a lot more investigating Mary's case. And so, Huge kudos to Murder in My Family podcast for having Marilyn on because we listened to that interview and we are so glad that she was, uh, Marilyn was willing to talk to us um, and expound on some of what she had said in that interview. Yeah. And Mary Morris was a real person. You know, you know that she worked at a bank. She also was an equestrian. See, I'm learning. <laughs> Good job. Not just a horsewoman. Yeah, not just a horsewoman, an equestrian. She owned horses. She had beautiful flowers. You know, this was a real person with a real life who went to work one day and never showed up and was apparently brutally murdered. So let's just walk through some things that we talked to Marilyn about. And I'm just going to run through the story you hear is Mary got up in the morning. You know, she kissed her husband goodbye. She went off to get some gas. She went in sort of the opposite direction she would normally go. She was never seen again around 10 o'clock. This is at six, six, six or so in the morning around 10 o'clock. There's smoke on this, this road. An ATV rider finds this car. It's all burnt out. At some point, Marilyn and her stepfather, Jay, drive out to where this car is because they're looking for Mary at this point. And the police are very, they don't want to talk about it. They basically say, yes, there's been a car found, but go home. And then eventually the police come back and say it was you know, it was your mother's car. We believe, you know, that she's she's deceased. There's a body in the car. 
It's a really horrible fire that burned for a long time and burned very hot to the extent that it essentially destroyed the body. There's very little left of her. Um, but one thing people noticed was that her wedding ring was missing, and that led some people to believe there was some sort of hit out on her and that the hitman had taken the wedding ring back as proof. And the one thing that's always said about this case is that she lived the perfect life. She had no problems. Everybody was happy, et cetera. So, Brett, let's flesh that out a little bit. Mary Morris didn't come into being the morning that she supposedly woke up and drove the opposite direction. Um, and the first day of her life wasn't the day she died, right? So let's talk a little bit about what Marilyn told us about her mom. First of all, like you said, Mary lived kind of out in Baytown. And and I, I'm not clear on this. She either lived on a property that could have horses or she lived in uh, a property that was near uh, horse farms. But it was clear that she loved horses. There were horses around. In fact, anyone who rides horses knows that you don't just ride the horses, right? You have to muck out the stalls. Mucking out the stalls means removing horse poop. Um, and there's a lot of it. Mary actually didn't just throw away that horse poop. Uh, Marilyn told us that Mary had these prize-winning rose bushes that everyone commented on it. She was kind of famous for having these beautiful rose bushes. And Marilyn said the secret to the beauty of these rose bushes was that Mary actually kept buckets of horse manure, probably for mucking out these stalls, and would apply them to her bushes. And you know, this is anyone out there saying, oh, that's gross. That's not gross at all. That's really what fertilizer is, right? Fertilizer contains manure in it and oftentimes horse manure because it's very rich in uh, nutrients that can make the soil very fertile, especially for growing uh, plants and plants that have a lot of nutrients, uh, especially if they're flowering plants, will be very beautiful when they bloom. Marilyn noted to us that there were buckets of manure around that Mary kept for her award-winning I don't know if award-winning, but, you know, stunning rose bushes. Right. And that's going to become important later on in the story. The other thing about Mary that we learned from Marilyn, was she was very assertive, strong-willed person, a commanding personality. The way Marilyn put it was she wore the pants. In the family, Jay was Marilyn's stepfather. Her mother and her birth father were, were divorced. They had owned tow trucks. Uh, Marilyn told us, that sort of a, a funny story. I mean, I guess it's it's funny now. I don't know that it was funny at the time that her birth father occasionally may have, you know, had a girlfriend or two. And I believe at one point, Mary found out about that and drove her her wrecker, her tow truck into the side of her father's car because she was angry about that. So she's, you know, this is not some passive personality. You know, this is not somebody who necessarily would go like a sheep to the slaughter or whatever if she ran into somebody that day. And on that day, it's always presented to us that she goes left, she goes to work. If she goes right, she goes to the gas station. Marilyn says that's not how it was. There was a gas station near the entrance to the freeway that she would have taken to work. So she had to go that direction. This notion that she went the opposite direction that morning is not true. She would have gone towards the freeway. And then once she reaches that gas station, where her body is eventually found is in the opposite direction from work. 
So it is in the opposite direction from work, but not necessarily from where she lived. And Brett, just to back up for a moment, to kind of add even a little bit more color to that story of Mary, you know, asserting herself, I think rightfully so, and driving her wrecker into uh, her ex-husband's car to basically say, like, you know, I'm not just going to roll over and let you take advantage of me in this way. We asked Marilyn, you know, exploring this theory of who could possibly do harm to her mom, we asked, um, you know, was she the type of person? You know, she was a seemingly get-along kind of person. Um, she seemed like she had no enemies. But if someone were threatening to her or in any way, right, at work, in her life, if there was anyone in her life who could be threatening, is that something she'd speak up about or would she kind of just let it go because she was this very friendly kind of personality, just brush it off, maybe not make a big deal of things? And before I could even finish that question, Marilyn jumped in and said, oh, no, my, that, that's not my mom's personality, not to say something and let others take advantage of her. If she saw something, even if it made the situation uncomfortable, Mary would speak up about it, right? She wasn't the type of person who would just be passive, passive aggressive, or just passive passive if someone were trying to take advantage of her, which I found really interesting because we often see profiles of women, especially women who have been abused in our cases, where they don't speak up. And no one in their life knows that someone uh, may be abusing them until it gets so bad that they end up, you know, in the hospital or something like that. And so I thought that was just a really interesting view into Mary's personality, that she is assertive. Even though she's a friendly, happy lady, she is not afraid to speak up, if, especially if someone were imposing on her. And this led to a very interesting conversation with Marilyn, because one of the questions we had you know, I mean, look, and Jay, I'm sure he knows this. Jay's not been very public about this case. But the fact of the matter is, as everybody knows, the first person anybody ever considers when someone is is killed is the significant other. And so we asked, you know, did did she have any problems with Jay? Did they have an abusive relationship, anything like that? And one thing Marilyn said was her mom had never said there were any problems in that relationship. He had, she had never seen them argue, and as far as she knew, they had a great relationship. And I, one of the interesting questions that Alice asked, you know, obviously Mary's relationship with Marilyn's birth father was not perfect. It had problems, and she had left that relationship. And Alice had asked whether or not Mary was the kind of person who if there were problems in her second marriage would feel, you know, like she'd failed. She, she did all this to get away from an abusive relationship. And now here she is back in one. And I thought that was really a really interesting point you, you made, Alice. I don't know if you want to talk more about that. Sure. I mean, we, again, this is kind of based on our experience of um, profiles of women who have had past experiences of either failed marriages or abusive relationships, we often see women who um, are witnesses in our cases, and they will not tell us who gave them that black eye, even though it's very obvious, you know, whether we have physical proof or we have video surveillance that it's their, let's say, current significant other, current husband, her current boyfriend who gave them that black eye, and they won't tell us. And it takes hours, weeks, months of rapport building before those women will tell us, 
I didn't want to tell you that my current boyfriend or significant other did this to me because I seem to keep finding myself in these abusive relationships and it's my fault. I'm the reason that I must be the common denominator if I have multiple failed relationships. And so that is a common profile we see uh, among women. And so that's why I asked Marilyn that question. We knew obviously that Jay was not her first husband. And so was there any sort of a sense that maybe she didn't want to admit any problems in the relationship lest she admit failure, um, you know, a second time in a second marriage. And to Marilyn's credit, she, she understood and, and recognized um, the question and said that really that wasn't her mom. Um, her mom wasn't afraid of that. And really seemingly she and Jay seemed very happy. And, you know, the only thing, um, about their relationship that stood out to Marilyn was that Jay seemed to be the one who would let Mary be the alpha. Right. Mary, like Brett said, wore the pants in the relationship and Mary kind of, I think, dictated a lot of things. And if anything, Jay was uh, just a, a milder personality to Mary's more assertive one. And, and, you know, this was another really interesting thing. At this time, Marilyn was a young adult. I think she was about 24 or so. So she was in college and which meant that she didn't live at home with them. And um, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Brett, but Jay and Mary had been married maybe five years at this point. And I only say this because it's, even though Jay is Marilyn's stepfather, it's not like he was her stepfather from when she was a young child and, and she grew up with him as a father figure in the house. It seemed like for the most part, their relationship was as adults. And Marilyn told us that they had a really good relationship, she and Jay. Um, he was helping her with, you know, her horses and they would talk, chat throughout the week and whatnot. It wasn't just a relationship through her mom. And so they had a good relationship and she felt close to him. Right. This is not one of those situations where something tragic happens and the people all say, oh, we always we always thought something about that guy. You know, he was always weird or he was always mean to me. Seems like their relationship before this happened was really good and they liked each other. And Alice is right. I think they met basically as adults. I think Marilyn was late teens um, when they met. She was 24 at the time her mom died. One one thing she mentioned that I thought was actually kind of quite beautiful um, is her daughter was born a year to the day after her mom died. So I know that's, you know, if you, if you don't believe in coincidences, I think that's sort of a, a touching thing. It's really poignant. It's, it's so poignant because, you know, from one, one life ends and another life begins and it's what, what sadness that day must be, but also what joy. Um, and it's beautiful to hold both emotions at one time. Right. Right. And and I really enjoyed our conversation. This is a little bit of an aside, but I really enjoyed our conversation with Marilyn. I hope you guys, we don't record our conversations usually with people because we want people to speak freely, but I hope you guys will check out Murder in My Family because she gives a really good interview there, and I think you'll hear the same thing that we heard. So on that day, just to run through a couple things that happened, we talked about this strange call between the bank manager who called home and Jay. Marilyn doesn't really know much more about that, and honestly, we're not even sure how that story came out or whether the police ran it down. This, you know, go ahead and check this off as one of the things that if the police were to do a serious reinvestigation of the case, figure out that call and figure out what 
happened. Apparently, Jay is the source of that story, as far as Marilyn knows. So he's the person who's told that story before. We haven't heard it from the side of the bank teller, and I think it would be good to hear. But apparently, Marilyn and Jay would often talk on the phone when she was at work, and he had called her several times because he hadn't heard from her that day. And around four o'clock, he called work. And that's when he found out that she wasn't there. Now, one thing that's interesting, Jay said that when he called her, her phone would roll over to voicemail. Now, the way the system worked at the time was at night, the night before, it would roll over to voicemail when everybody left. And in order for it to come off voicemail, when you got into work that day, you would have to do something to it to make it go back to, you know, ringing through to your line. So the fact that it continued to roll over to voicemail means, and I don't think this is a huge shock, but I think this confirms that Mary never made it to work that day. Now, one thing that's interesting, apparently Mary had a cell phone, but she left it. She left it at home that morning. And that was something that really surprised Marilyn because Her mom was ahead of her time, and she always had her cell phone with her. And the fact that she left it is unusual. What it means, I don't know, but it is an unusual thing that happened that day, the day that she was killed. Absolutely. No, I think that's a really important fact in probably establishing the timeline, because we're not exactly sure of the timeline, except that the phone was left at home. You know, one other thing that Marilyn confirmed for us that uh, we had heard, and I think she confirmed, is that Mary was beloved at work. Everyone at work loved her. And so she also found it a little bit surprising that seemingly no one called when she didn't show up for work. Now, Mary was very responsible. We said that last time. Um, And so I don't know who it was that called. And again, you would think that someone, everyone at her office was interviewed or everyone, there was some conversation over there with the police. But as far as Marilyn knew, she didn't know of anyone over at her mom's office being interviewed. So that's another investigative step that maybe the police have already done. But if they haven't, it seems like that could be pretty easily investigated to get some sort of understanding of when it was noticed that she was gone and if any steps were taken by work to confirm whether she meant to take a sick day that day. And that goes along with, as far as Marilyn knew, her mom did not have any enemies at work. And we asked Marilyn how often she talked to her mom and if she had talked to her mom, you know, the night before Mary's death. And she said she did not talk to her the night before her death, but she talked to her likely the day before because she said she wouldn't go more than about two two days or so without talking to her mom. So she would talk to her about every other day. And I think this is significant because – so the day that Mary died, um, her that she was found in the burning car was on a Thursday. And we asked Marilyn if there was work that Wednesday because it's a work day and if um, her mom had gone to work. And she said she is almost positive that her mom would have gone to work. There's no reason her mom wouldn't have gone to work on that Wednesday. And I don't know if anyone at her work was interviewed, but I would assume that when she left work, that likely was the last public 
sighting of her mom. Uh, we asked Marilyn, did she know if her mom went out to dinner that night, got together with friends, anything? And she said, likely she didn't. Um, during the week, she usually just went home and laid pretty low. And again, the police may have already interviewed her workplace, but that would be interesting to know when the last confirmed sighting of her mom was. Right. Because, I mean, this is going to repeat throughout our conversations about both Marys, but so much of the information we know comes from people that you might suspect or you might think or at least people the police should look at. And so we don't actually know. The only way we know that Mary got up that morning and left for work is that's what her husband, Jay, told us. Jay may be, you know, as, as pure as the driven snow, but given the fact that you always want to eliminate you know, the, the, the significant other first, that's one of the first things you want to do when the only person who can tell you a piece of information is the significant other. That's, that's troubling. You would like to know more, but we just don't. It seems like Marilyn and Mary did have a good relationship. They had gone on vacation together recently. Like Alice said, they talked on the phone a lot. Marilyn was in school at the time. So, and she went to school sort of across town and she was in she was in a rigorous program where she couldn't miss school. So she was at she was at school that day when this happened, when she got a phone call from Jay, essentially saying that he did not know where her mother was. Now, Jay had already called the police, which is understandable. He'd also called his other daughter, who was Mary's stepdaughter. And I think that bothered Marilyn a little bit. Didn't know why he called her first. But in any event... Marilyn immediately goes to the house. The The other daughter is there. He's there. And she wants to go and look for her mother. Now, her father, her birth father, as we mentioned before, is in the tow truck industry. So she called him and she said, look, worried about my mom. You know, maybe she's broken down on the side of the road somewhere. If you hear anything through sort of your network about mom, let me know as soon as you can. And then they sort of head off to find to see if they can find her mom. The first thing they do is they drive to Houston. They drive in the direction of the bank, which makes sense. Make sure she's not broken down on the side of the road here. And this is the first time where Marilyn starts to feel like maybe Jay is acting unusually. You know, she talks about how if it were her driving, they'd be speeding down the road trying to find her mom. And then Jay took a sort of more lackadaisical, you know, maybe he's just being safe, but he was not as in a big a hurry as she was. So they drove all the way to Houston. They drove all the way back. They didn't see her mom's car. One thing Marilyn noted was that as soon as she got the call from Jay, she was panicked. Right. Um, she knew this was just out of character for her mom. So she didn't even think for a second, well, maybe she's just somewhere. She didn't bring her phone. Maybe everything's fine. Uh, Marilyn said that as soon as she got the call, and it's not even the end of the workday yet, um, she said she got in her car and immediately drove in the direction to go help look for her mom. Right. And when she talked to her father, her father had heard that there was a car. I think he'd actually seen it on the news that there was a car fire. And that it was at the crossroads of Crosby, Lynchburg, and I-10. So that's where this, this car fire 
was spotted. And so Marilyn decides, let's go see if we can find this car. Let's see if it's her mother's car. And this time she decides to drive. She's not she's not gonna putter down the road this time. She's gonna she's gonna go for it. So they're driving in the direction of this this Crosby, Lynchburg, and I-10 crossover. And Marilyn, and she discusses this on the Murder in My Family podcast. Essentially, she doesn't she knows the area, but she doesn't know it as well as her stepfather knows it. And so she's sort of relying on him to guide her to Cros- Crosby, Lynchburg, and I-10. And she talks about how they come to a stop sign. And when she looks left, she can see what looks like an overpass, which she takes to be I-10. And so she is telling, she's asking her stepfather, is this the way? Do I need to turn left so I can go towards I-10? He's like, no, you want to go straight. You want to go straight. And eventually she sort of relents and they continue down the road. And sure enough, just down the road, they come to another road that intersects where a police officer is stationed. And they talk to the police officer and it turns out that the car is down the road and that's, that is where the car was. Now here's the interesting thing. Her father and the news station that had reported on this got it wrong. The car wasn't at Crosby, Lynchburg and I-10. It was at Crosby, Cedar, Bayou. The weird thing about that her stepfather's supposed to be taking her one place, and he takes her to another place. And the place he takes her, the place he's not supposed to be going, is the place where the car was found. And that's one of those things that I think has always struck Marilyn as unusual. Now, once the police confirmed that that was her mother in that car, they did what they should do. They separated Marilyn and her father. Frankly, both of them are probably suspects at this point. They're both close to the victim. And Brett, we've mentioned this before. If you find um, if you find a body, it doesn't matter who you are, you're a suspect, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you not only end up in the vicinity of the body, but you're related to the person, you're going to be even more of a suspect. So it's not surprising that they looked at them. Marilyn was very upset. Her father... Didn't show a whole lot of emotion. Now, we've talked about this before. People deal with tragedy in different ways. Some people are incredibly emotional. Some people are, you know, basically inconsolable. Other people are very stoic. That's how they handle emotion. So I never think that you should put too much stock into that. The fact of the matter is that her father, for whatever reason, whatever reason you want to to attach to this, these are just the facts, moved on pretty quickly. Um, you know, he, he sold her stuff. When they released the car to him, he immediately turned it over to the, to the salvage yard, which, I mean, I don't know. I would probably do the same thing. Somebody gave me the burned out car that my wife was murdered in. But one thing interesting about that car, um, and Marilyn doesn't know for a fact, but she doesn't think that the car was actually taken into evidence. And so... I agree. The car was clearly so burned out that there wasn't much use for it. You couldn't salvage it. But she doesn't think that it was taken in as evidence and maybe thoroughly searched. And that was an interesting note because we asked her about her mom's missing wedding ring. And she said that 
she thinks it's possible that the ring was still in the car, maybe burned and covered in ashes, but that she doesn't know because she didn't have a chance to look at the car and she's not even sure that it was thoroughly searched by the police. Um, so it's possible that this is not a case of a missing ring, but rather a ring that's just sitting there waiting to be found, but had didn't have the opportunity to be discovered because it was signed over so quickly. I would like to believe that the police searched that car and searched it pretty thoroughly. I would think they would have. Talk about a missed opportunity if they didn't. This ring issue has been so talked about. But as Alice said, I mean, look, this was a really bad fire. I mean, her body was basically destroyed. If that ring just ended up in the floor, in the floorboard, covered up in ashes, and that turned into a story that it was stolen or it was never found, that's huge. And we can never fix that if they didn't look at it. Marilyn doesn't think they looked at it. I find that hard to believe. I would love to know if they did, but that is an interesting point. And it's one of those things so many of these cases we talk about, they're ruined from the start. You know, it was mistakes that happened the day of, the day after, that haunt these cases for years. And have haunted this case for 20 years. As I was saying, really, Marilyn and her stepfather had had a great relationship up to this point. After her mother died, for whatever reason, that relationship changed very dramatically. I think her father, for whatever reason, was just ready to move on from this. Whether through grief or whatever, he was ready to go. He sold her horse. He sold her mom's horse, you know, which was something that was very important to her. He sold the house. Whew, I, I will. I will just stop right there for a second. Um, it it's akin to basically someone selling your dog. You know, if you were to die, I'm, I'm speaking as someone who would feel very sad if someone just you know, sold my horse uh, right after I left, especially since Marilyn was a horse person as well, right? We talked about how, um, I don't know if she had horses, but she she certainly rode and was around horses and Jay would help her with with uh, issues with her horses some, at, from time to time. And so as she was so close to her mother, I can imagine what a hit that was to Marilyn to see her mom's horse go because horses really... You know, they don't sleep inside your house, but they really do become part of your family. And it it sounds like Jay, for whatever reason, didn't give Marilyn many, many opportunities to go through her mom's stuff or to pick out things that she would have have wanted to keep. Um, He moved on in his relationship. He met a woman overseas, I believe from Russia, and I think he was married to her within the year. And I think Marilyn has only met this lady, or she even met her once when Jay gave her the opportunity to get some of her mom's stuff. And they haven't really talked since. So whatever relationship they had before is pretty much pretty much done now. A couple of interesting things about that day. And some things that I don't know, I don't know how public any of this stuff is. But talking to Marilyn, she has some information that, that I found to be quite striking and we can only take her word for it we haven't talked to any of the the officers in this case yeah brett the most the most surprising thing that i heard from her and she seemed surprised that people didn't know 
was I wanted to know about the accelerant used on her mom's body. I don't know for a fact that there was an accelerant, but based on how badly her mom was burned, it seems only um, likely that there was an accelerant used. And she said that the police did not think that it was gasoline because it burned so hot and gasoline burns too quickly to get hot enough. She says that her mom was so badly melted, essentially, that a a, a very few types of accelerants can reach that high temperature. And she told us that the police thought it was manure that was the accelerant because manure burns slowly. You, You can start fires with like you know, cow patties. Uh, that's partly why is they burn very slowly, whereas it's harder to burn, say, straw, because straw burns up right away and doesn't really heat up. And that was fascinating to me because I said, well, what? where would someone get manure? And that's when Marilyn told us about the buckets of manure that her mom kept for her roses. We don't know if it was in fact manure. Um, and I don't think that information has been out there before, but have you seen out there that it was manure that likely reached those? Yeah, I mean, that it, it was shocking. I mean, I think the two of us just had our jaws dropped and it was silent on the call. <laughs> yeah, the police have never released the accelerant. They've always been very quiet about that. You know, honestly, if it hadn't been 20 years, I might even feel a little weird about saying that. But yeah, according to Maryland, they think it was manure. And that makes sense. Manure will burn long and it will burn hot. And that's what you needed here. It couldn't be gasoline. It just can't. Gasoline would not do this to a human body. It would need to be something. I thought it was something like oil or, you know, something that that burns long and hot. And manure is a really interesting idea. And obviously, when you think about manure, there's only so many people who would have that. Obviously, Marilyn or excuse me, Mary had access to that. She had a pile of manure or buckets of manure, as Alice has said. And so. You start to wonder who would have access to that. And you kind of come back to the same people we've been talking about. You think about Marilyn, you think about Jay, you think about people who would know about that. Now, one other person you might think about is Mary herself. And this led to the second thing that we talked to Marilyn about that when we first heard it, we're quite shocked about it. And as we mentioned to you in the last episode, we have talked to a, a person, a detective, who has been looking into this sort of on their own completely just because they're interested in the case and they have connections in Harris County and, and the detectives in or one of the detectives in the cold case unit who's worked this case told this person that he believed this was suicide, that Mary had actually killed herself and started the fire that that burned her body that our detective friend who told us this thought that was the most absurd thing he'd ever heard so did Marilyn Marilyn thought that was crazy the statement that the detective made was that Marilyn or that Mary had cancer that she had discovered she had cancer and she decided to commit suicide now once again if she had cancer and the detectives know that that's something that can be proved one way or the other. It doesn't necessarily mean she killed herself. I find it almost impossible to believe that someone would kill themselves by burning themselves alive. But that apparently is what at least one detective in the cold case unit believes. And, you know, we asked Marilyn, did her mom have any health issues? And she said, 
not absolutely not. And um, we asked, is it possible that she just didn't want to burden Marilyn, who was in school, with a diagnosis for a terminal illness? And Marilyn said, absolutely not. They were so close. Her mom wouldn't have shied away from telling her if that was in fact the case. And in any event, there would be medical records to back up something like a cancer diagnosis. And she said she's never heard of anything like that. Nothing like that has come to light. And she just, Marilyn, uh, with her professional background, recognizes that oftentimes people who commit suicide, those around them didn't see it coming. And she says, of course, anyone, you know, could be in that category. But she says, as well as I knew my mom, I truly do not think she is capable of suicide. And that's coming from you know, the person that was probably closest to her. Okay. So some other things that were interesting about that day. Apparently, Jay had actually driven down the road where Mary's body was found, or at least gone that way. He had gone to Orange, Texas that day to see a man about a horse. He actually was looking at a horse that day. And that was the route he took to get to Orange. The police actually looked into this and and were able to confirm that he had gone to Orange that day to see a horse. And so this is sort of an interesting thing, because on the one hand, Jay has an alibi. He wasn't even in town that day. He was out looking at a horse, and he's got somebody who can say that. On the other hand, it's interesting that his path would have taken him essentially right down where Mary's body was found. And, I mean, that's quite a coincidence. Marilyn actually described that, you know, when she heard that piece of information, her own jaw dropped, and she was just stunned. Yeah, and look, we have no idea what happened in this case. We don't know if Mary killed herself. We don't know if some random person picked her up at the gas station, carjacked her at the gas station, murdered her and left her body there. We don't know what happened. But you got to think, if Jay doesn't have anything to do with this, I mean, that's got to haunt him, right? I mean, he drove right right there. He was right there where where Mary's body was eventually found and, you know, didn't, didn't see anything. So that's got to be something that haunts him. Well, so we, we had thought about how, how did Mary get to that, to that road, right? It's not on the way to work. It's not really the direction she would be going. And so I had thought, well, maybe someone forced her to drive that direction or something. But this was the really shocking fact that Marilyn told us that she didn't think was that surprising. She thought we would know. She didn't know that. I don't think any any podcast that's covered this case has covered this fact, and it is incredibly important to the story. And that is Mary's position in the car. Mary was not found in the driver's seat. She was found in the passenger seat. I mean, let that sink in for just a moment. And it's so significant, right? I mean, this is, she's in the passenger seat. Why is she in the passenger seat? If Someone had carjacked her. I mean, I guess you can imagine them opening the driver's side door, but then what? Forcing her to climb over the center console? I mean, this is not one of those like old Delta 88s that just has a, a bleacher or not a bleacher, but a uh, whatever they called it. It's like a, you know, a seat in the front and you can just slide across. I mean, this is 
this is a modern vehicle. So they're probably not doing that. I mean, normally if you were going to take the person with you, you jump in the passenger side, put a gun on them. So it makes you wonder, was she taken outside of her car? Was she put in her car? Was she not alive when she got into that car? It opens up so many different possibilities. It makes you think that the suicide theory is really weak. Because why would she move to the passenger side of the car to commit suicide? It's a fact that's really important. That makes you think a lot of different things about this case that's never really been released. And it makes you think about, let's think about this. Let's think about manure and her position. Now, was the manure put on her? When she got put into the passenger seat? Was it when she got to the location? I mean, these are very interesting questions because what we know about crimes, right, is people typically want to leave the scene quickly. So how do you leave a scene quickly? You don't spend time putting the accelerant on a body because you are on an open road. Even if it is a rural road, someone can still drive by and see you. The fastest thing is to drive a car there, it's ready to be set on fire, and to leave and be out of there in under a minute. Now, if you have to move a body or force someone to get into the passenger seat, that takes time. If you have to then apply an accelerant, that takes more time. None of these are impossible. I'm just stating that these steps cause more time. And so that's why I think it's unlikely that she was asked, she was asked to climb over to go into the passenger seat. Yeah, I think the the combination of the passenger seat and the manure, if true, if those two facts are true, and the police know those two things to be true, and look, if they use manure as an accelerant, the police know that. The police could the police could make that determination. If that's true, this is not a random crime. This is somebody that knew her. Could have been a lot of different people that knew her, but it's somebody that knew her. The fact she's in the passenger seat, the fact that there was manure used. Tells me it's somebody who knew her. I think she probably, I don't think she was alive when they put her in the car. I think you're probably right. I think whoever did this probably murdered her, put her in the car, put the manure in the car, drove the car up a back road, lit the fire, and got out of there. They weren't going to spend any time there. I think if this were a random act of violence, number one, they wouldn't have used manure. Even if they did try and light the car on fire just to destroy evidence, they would have just used gasoline. I mean, this is, if that's true, if the manure thing is true, and Marilyn seemed pretty certain of it, if that's true, it tells you a lot about, a lot about this case and who, who may or may not have been involved in it. Now, the police never searched her home. Uh, as far as Marilyn knows, the only time they were there is they did ask whether or not Mary had a gun. And she did have a gun, and the gun was in the bedroom, and the police and Marilyn was there when this happened. They went back to the bedroom, found the gun. The gun had not been fired recently. They could tell that. The bed was made. Nothing was out of place. There was no sign of a struggle or anything in the home. So that's that's essentially what we know about this case. We learned a lot of things that we didn't know before. But what I came away from talking to Marilyn was this case is always presented. The Mary, the first Mary Morris case is always presented as this sort of inexplicable murder with no good evidence because of the fire that can never be solved and there's no point in really even talking about it let's just use it to set up the second mary morris's 
death. And after talking to Marilyn, if 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 what Marilyn says is true, if she's accurate, then I just don't think that's right. I think this is actually a case that seems to have all sorts of evidence and and really could be solved if somebody put the effort into it that the case deserves. And Brett, also, with everything that we learned from Marilyn, this does not seem like a mistaken identity hitman sort of murder. Because like you said, it sounds like it was someone who knew Marilyn. I'm sorry. This was someone who knew Mary. And so when you look at it in its own lens, its own Mary Morris lens, it becomes more clear that this is a typical type of murder that we would see on our hands, right? Uh, It's only when you tie it to the second Mary Morris that it becomes a sensational story. But when you look at it alone, the facts are there. This is a solvable case. Now, it was interesting. We asked Marilyn whether or not she thought there was a possibility of the hitman and all that other stuff. And and though she generally does not think so and, and says the police don't think so either, she did note how when she first saw the second Mary Morris on television, you know, she didn't look at her closely and she literally thought they were talking about her mother's death. They say Mary Morris, they're similar looking people. And she just sort of thought they had messed up her mother's story because they're telling the story that's just not quite right, but it's close enough and they look close enough that even she was confused for a moment. So it is certainly quite a coincidence if a coincidence it is, but this doesn't seem like a random thing. And if when I'm trying to imagine the hitman who would come, who would murder her, who would take the manure and then burn the, burn the car. I mean, I guess it's possible uh, that they would do something like that. I mean, the hitman shows up and he thinks, huh, there's some manure here. That'll be helpful for me later. And then uses it. But I think you're right. I just don't think this is a random act of violence. And I don't think it was a mistake. One other thing just to touch on briefly, because it is an interesting question and one that we have not been able to solve and that Marilyn couldn't help us solve, is this purse that was found in Galveston. As you may recall, Jay got a $2,000 phone card bill that they were able to trace to a 16-year-old girl in Galveston, Texas. And apparently, and Jay is the source for whether or not it was the purse. He said it wasn't the purse. And as you may recall, I, sexist that I am, said that I didn't think a man would know whether or not it was his wife's purse. Because who knows what your wife's purse looks like? Nobody knows that. But Marilyn was able to confirm that the brand of the purse that they found was not the kind of purse her mom would have had. So, Yeah, specifically, you know, Marilyn said she knew exactly the purse that her mom had. Her mom had a Dooney and Burke uh, brand purse, which is a nice purse. And she said that the one that was found um, was, I think, a, a Kmart brand. And she said that her mom just had never had that brand of purse. And a really interesting thing she said is even if her mom switched purses, which was not frequent, right? She said her mom would likely have a purse for about six months, use it most every day, and then maybe move on to a new purse once that purse had reached the end of its life. But even if she changed purses, Marilyn said, and I think a lot of us with purses can probably um, uh, recognize this true, she kept her wallet the same because it is a headache to change out your cash, your credit cards, your ID. So she would just take her wallet, 
which was Dooney and Burke, and put it in whatever uh, purse she was going to use if it was different than the Dooney and Burke. And so she said, at the end of the day, it was a Dooney and Burke wallet and a Dooney and Burke purse. And even if not the purse, definitely the wallet if it were her phone cards, um, unless the phone card was put in something else. And she said... The girls who had found the um, phone cards and the purse that it was in, they said that they had dumped the purse because it was probably like a, a cheaper brand purse. They didn't need to keep it. And she said there was no wallet either. They dumped everything. And Marilyn said if they had found the wallet, they probably would have kept it because it was a Dooney and Burke wallet, which again is an expensive brand. And that's not something you would just toss. You'd keep it for yourself. And so she thinks that likely the phone cards were just placed there. Yeah, and I don't have any good explanation for the purse, and, and Marilyn didn't either. How it ended up there, why it was in a different purse, I just, I don't know what's going on there. I honestly think of all the evidence for a hitman, this is the best evidence for the hitman as far as I'm concerned, that he essentially tracked her down, killed her, he was from Galveston, he took the purse back, and at some point just throws the purse out the window or whatever, and the wallet, you know, and the purse go one way and the phone card goes another way and, and whatever happens, happens. I, don't, I can't explain it. I don't really know. Would be interested if any of you guys have a good theory on that and why that would happen. But that's really, that really is the story of the first Mary Morris's death. A lot of things are true. One reason this will be a difficult case. This is basically a no-body case. I mean, we have the body. We know that she was there. We know that she was murdered, but we just don't have any of the forensic evidence you would normally have in a murder. Often the body is just a huge source of evidence. You can learn so much from the body, and we don't have that here. But we do have a lot of other evidence, and it would be nice if the police would take a second look at this case, a second run at this case. I feel like... The second Mary Morris, and we're going to talk about her next time, she gets all the all the focus, and that's fine. I don't want her not to get focus. She deserves justice, too. But the first Mary Morris has never really gotten that focus, and I'm hopeful that people will reconsider this case, and they'll take a second look at it, and they'll take a second look, in particular, at the first Mary Morris's death and see if they can come up with some more stuff, some more evidence, and maybe bring closure to to Marilyn and her family. So we're going to stop there on the first Mary Morris. Next time, we're going to talk about the second Mary Morris, and we've got so much more to discuss. We've talked, as we said before, those of you who know this story know that Dwayne becomes a very important person. He's the focus of, of the Unsolved Mysteries episode, and a lot of True Crime Podcast to talk about this. We talked to Dwayne. We talked to Laurie Gimmel, who is or was uh, the second Mary's good friend who worked with her and worked with Dwayne. We talked to both of them. We talked to people from the Houston Chronicle about this case. And so we have a lot to say about the second Mary Morris as well. And then after we finish talking about that, we're going to bring it all back together. We're going to talk about these two cases together and and sort of See whether or not we think this hitman thing has any possibility of being true or if it's if truly is the case that these cases are completely separate. But you guys probably already have thoughts. We've done two episodes on this now. You know our address, prosecutorspod at gmail.com, at prosecutorspod for all the various social media out there. We're on Reddit. 
We're on Patreon. Check us out on Patreon. We now have merchandise. If you guys go to our website, which is prosecutorspodcast.com, there's a link to our store. Click on the store link. You'll see some of the merchandise. Click on any of that stuff. It'll take you to the main store. And when you can get yourself a, a, a prosecutor's podcast coffee mug, which I know you've always wanted, or a shirt. So you can join Team Al. Any of those things. <laughs> so check that out. And now, all, by the way, by the way, all Alice. Alice did oh, all that. So give her please, the praise. Please, please. Uh, so in other words, you can complain to me. <laughs> uh, but just so you know, uh, we appreciate you guys. A lot of y'all have already bought things. We are so appreciative. Tweet those pictures at us. We would love to see you in some prosecutor <laughs> podcast gear. Absolutely. Do that immediately. I want to see that. I can't. But Alice, do you have anything else to say about this this case before we sign off for today? And that's it. You know, we said that this was going to be kind of a different presentation, um, but I think it's been really important to put out there facts that are important about this first Mary Morris case that has not previously been discussed because I think it um, really has been brushed to the side. And so we hope we've been able to give you the tools. Now you guys be the detectives, connect those dots and let us know your theories. And I just got to say, we got one more episode on Mary Morris. And those of you who are all about trials and, and that stuff, the next case we're going to do, you're going to love it. So, <laughs> so if you don't love Mary Morris, endure it for, for one more episode, and then we'll be, we'll be in the middle of a lot of legal legalese. And, and those of you who love that stuff, the next case is for you. Next time, we'll finish up Mary Morris. Sorry, I lied to you in the beginning when I said we we're going to finish up today. We'll finish it up next time. But until then, I'm Brett. And I'm Alice. And we are The Prosecutor. By the way, I've never watched Snowmance. You haven't seen Snowmance? You've got to watch Snowmance. Well, here's the thing. Snowmance what is what awesome. um, thing is it on? Think I mean, I bought it. I forget That's where it came on. I can't believe it was Hallmark or Lifetime, okay. but I watched it, I and it was so amazing. I bought it. We watch it every year. We haven't watched it yet. Snowmance. No, so I believe it. It's a great title. Well, we just watched Pride and Prejudice and Mistletoe. See, really, the only connection is the lead character's name is Darcy. That's That's Do you find that Christmas movie titles are kind of like porn titles? <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, I mean, you know what okay, I'm talking I'm about. I'm gonna say this to you. I'm just saying. But there you know. was just one that was that was called. It was advertised. It was called Christmas Comes Twice. Oh gosh. <laughs> oh gosh.